How, how can investigation happen to apply the what? How to investigate skillfully without it becoming a question and answer uh, thing going on in your head. Well, personally, I, I experience investigation as investigation of states as one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Speaking of it in that way, it really has nothing to do with the thinking process at all. It's, uh, it's hard in using English because as soon as we say investigate right away, you know, the mind says, okay, starts asking questions. Um, and occasionally I must admit that if, I, if I'm tuning in to my experience and feeling investigation is low, I might actually frame a question like, what's going on? Or, or what's happening to um, tune me in. But that's the maximum. And the state of investigation is really a turning of attention to whatever appearance is there because of the sinking in of mindfulness and sort of this energetic staying with it. It's, it's, um, it's not from thinking. And so any kind of understanding, or say there's some what's going on, like that. That opens me up. I might tune in and realize, oh, it's a mental state. Okay, that's, that's words, but that's really a result of recognizing, just putting a note on what was pre-verbally recognized. And then in staying with it, not, man, which one? Now, could this be sadness? Could this be grief? Not that at all, but just staying really close within it. And so, oh, grief. Stay with it a little long. Oh, no, sadness. But it, it's arising out of being with the experience, not from trying to think about and describe. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah Trish. It's good to notice. Uh, you probably couldn't hear her in the back. She says, um, in a sitting, she might be, in a sitting where she's feeling quite clear and mindful but also very pleasant, very blissful. And the bell goes, and there's a tendency, oh, I'll stay and investigate this. And another sitting where she's also very clear, very mindful, but what she's mindful of is actually pain and investigating and present with it. Same quality of mindfulness, and the bell goes. It's like, okay, I'll come back to this later. Any comments? <laughs> and she feels a little guilty. Always guilt is extra. Notice guilt. Guilt is extra. We don't need it. It doesn't help. Um, 
It's great to notice that first, because of course that's our tendency. It's nice we stay, it's painful we go. That's exactly that root, avoid the unpleasant and stay with the pleasant. So to notice it on more subtle levels is wonderful, not to feel guilty about it. And that you're noticing it is helpful because it's true that um, we'd prefer to just be with pleasant states. So, so actually for myself, I'm, I, when I become aware at the end of a sitting that I'm, the energy's present, the mindfulness is clear, I'm quite with whatever's going on, and I feel I have the energy and the mindfulness to sit longer, and when the bell goes, that's what I use as a deciding factor, the quality of attention, not what is happening. And so I kind of just make a, a pact with myself, you know, and um, just tuning in more to the quality of mindfulness and seeing, oh, I don't want to be with this pain. The bell's gone. I'm out of here. Okay, start noticing that. Start noting, you know, desire to go or aversion or whatever it is. And you might only stay four more minutes. It's not you have to stay the whole sitting period. You know, but just to give yourself a few moments to explore that tendency, thank God I don't have to look at this anymore, the bell rang, to just gently move through that and begin to tune in more to the quality of balanced mindfulness. And again, that's not to sit and hurt yourself. Uh, It's not saying you should sit with pain and cause yourself injury. I'm not saying that. It's just more when it's a general discomfort, but the mindfulness is clear. So great to notice. And if you do get up when it's unpleasant, keep noting as you get up so that the guilt doesn't expand. Just, okay, guilty, guilty. Just notice that and, and stay with your experience. It's okay either way, really. Okay, there's one sort of unclear announcement. We don't, do we really know how? We thought since we're at the half point of the retreat, or for some of you, the first day of the retreat, we would like to give a brief review of the instructions. So that's what I'll be doing now. And if you've been here a while, it might be a useful review, or it might not be what's happening for you now. So if that's the case, hearing, hearing, let it go through. Don't get into, oh no, I have to go back and just be with the breath. But just let it come in, let it go out. If something useful sticks, that's nice. Um. So when you sit down, don't just jump onto the breath with some kind of uh, desperation. Let yourself come to an ease of sitting here. Connect with feeling your body, the sitting posture. Let your mind and body come together in this moment, in this posture, in this room. 
relax into this moment. And then, if it's been helpful to you, let your awareness open up to the experience of hearing. How without striving, sounds arise by themselves. They are known by awareness quite effortlessly. And they pass. learning to use awareness of hearing to reconnect with a quality of alert yet relaxed awareness. Awake presence without trying to do anything. And in the same relaxed way, when one is ready, to begin to notice the physical sensations of breathing in just the same relaxed, non-doing way that we notice hearing. Noticing sensations of in-breath, as they come by themselves and go by themselves. Feeling the sensations of out-breath in the same relaxed yet alert way. And using the mental tool of labeling wherever you're feeling the breath more clearly, in at the beginning of the in-breath, out, if you're feeling it in the nose or chest, you're feeling it in the abdomen, can be rising, falling. The labeling is very soft and it's a tool to help connect the attention with the actual sensations. It's not a command. 
and then simply feeling the sensations of in-breath, the sensations of out-breath. And throughout the retreat, we've been using both the feelings of breath as the primary focus or primary anchor of attention. And also, for some people, at some times, the experience of hearing. Using the breath when the attention feels scattered, spacey, very unfocused, using the sensation of in-breath and out-breath to aim the attention at the sensations and connect and sustain throughout each part of each breath, to help the mindfulness come to an alertness. Yet at times this quality of precision can turn to clutching or tightness, striving, become involved in a struggle to make the breath more clear, to make it better. At times like this, opening to the non-striving aspect of attention via hearing can be very helpful. Just relax and let sounds arise by themselves and the clear knowing arise by itself. And then when we reconnect with that aspect of knowing, can come back and bring the same relaxed attention to the breath. So it's a dance. As the attention begins to feel a bit more settled, feeling the breath, noticing when thinking arises, soft mental label of thinking, When the thinking vanishes, coming back again to feeling the breath. If you've just arrived, you might want to keep it that simple for a couple of days. But as the mind settles a bit for the rest of us, when being fully present with one breath, then this aspect of choiceless awareness or momentary concentration begins to open up for us. So in feeling one breath, become aware of a sensation in the body. 
in the moment of noticing it, it's stronger than the breath, then give that sensation full attention. Just leave the breath be. Move full attention to the sensation. Soft mental label, burning, itching, tingling, whatever. And explore it with kind, nonviolent attention. Simply knowing how the sensation behaves without needing to like it or dislike it or change it in any way. And as it lives its life, coming back again to the breath. In the same way when emotions, moods, mental states arise, noticing it, giving it a soft label or name is very helpful in knowing what's happening without getting lost or identified with it. Happiness, happiness, excitement, boredom, grief, metta, anger, soft label and noticing and allowing the component parts of the experience of emotion to simply be, but cradled with our loving attention. So anger, anger, feeling the physical body manifestations, perhaps there's tightness, tension, burning, contraction, simply noticing and being with, without an agenda. Perhaps there's thoughts, a story that is bringing up the anger or carrying it farther. Notice the thinking and come back to the in-this-moment physical experience of anger. Or notice the mood tone in the mind. As it fades, coming back to the primary anchor. Or if you begin to get too lost in the story, again, make a more clear notation, thinking, anger, but pull out of it and come back to breathing. Similarly, noting thinking, noticing what happens to it, certain repetitive thought trains, the label can be more precise, planning, fantasizing, remembering. Notice what happens to it and come back to the breath or hearing.
It sounds like a lot all at once. But it's really very simple. Using either hearing or the sensations of the breath to connect with this present moment with alert and relaxed attention. And you never need to look for anything else. All other experiences, when they arise, arise by themselves. When there's mindfulness of breath or hearing, you'll spontaneously notice any other appearance. And all we do then is simply acknowledge what's already happening and give it full and kind attention. That's all. And whenever you're confused, there's too much happening, or there's nothing else happening, use your friend, your primary anchor, and simply rest in whatever's arising in this moment, the breath or hearing. You don't need to do anything else. Yeah, yeah, Mike. Sorry, I can't. The balancing factors. The ba- what do you mean by balancing factors? Well, the seven factors of enlightenment. Oh, right, okay. Uh, joy and investigation. Mm-hmm. He's asking uh, the seven factors of enlightenment. What are the balancing ones for joy and investigation? Well, there's seven factors, right? Both joy or rapture and investigation of states are two of the three energizing factors the third energizing factor being, obviously, energy or effort. Mindfulness balances all of them. So mindfulness is always a balancing factor. And the three uh, calming balancing factors are calm, uh, equanimity, and concentration. So it's a good question. It's a great way to evaluate or just sort of see your practice when you're not in a self-judging mode. If you're really energized and there's a lot of joy and investigation, you can uh, work with mindfulness always and also bring in some more uh, concentration, that kind of sticky steadiness on the object, and equanimity. With joy, we can get really like attached to it. So you bring in equanimity of just noting, liking, liking, and, and that'll be fine. Oh, good. Yeah, probably. Um, last thing at night is um, I'm usually very tired and um, I'll go down into the driveway and no one can see me. <laughs> <laughs> Only the neighbours. <laughs> 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 or I'll you know, sort of breathe in slowly or drink some water. But um, I'm finding that I'm still, you know, like just a few minutes into the sitting, 
There's just no mindfulness and there's no energy at all to bring mindfulness there. Is there any benefits when there is no mindfulness? <laughs> I know what you wish I'm going to say. <laughs> She said, in case you couldn't hear her, in the last sitting in the evening, very often <laughs> there's, there's uh, just, even though she goes out and jogs a little in the spot, drinks cold water, breathes in cold air before the sit, a few minutes into the sit, very often the mindfulness is just gone and there's no energy to bring it back. Is there any benefit at all? <laughs> to sitting with no mindfulness whatsoever. <laughs> I personally have a vast experience of this exact uh, sitting state that you're speaking of. And uh, I hate to tell you that I have, and really this, it's true, I've found that there is a benefit. For myself, often, uh, and it isn't always, and that's what's important to recognize. It is usually not always. From 8, 8.30 on, you know, my mindfulness, my energy just goes down. It's just like that in my life, too. And I, I do a couple of things. One is I've begun to, I'll sit a half an hour, walk a half an hour, um, which I know is hard if you're needing to sit in the hall. But I, if I, you do shorter segments and alternate, it keeps the energy flowing a bit better. And I've found that uh, I will almost always sit and walk, at least a sitting or walking, past the point where I'm feeling like you're describing, if it's happening every night, especially if it happens early. Because I've discovered, even though it feels like there's no mindfulness and nothing's happening, I've found that by doing that, um, over time I've actually been able to tell there is some mindfulness there. And there are certain other of, uh, like, other, other of the enlightenment factors are actually being cultivated. For example, equanimity. Sitting, and that's important. It's like we tend to think all it is is mindfulness and energy. It's not. You know, that freedom is possible with no energy. You know, and it's, it's not just to have this totally pristine balance in every sitting or the sitting's a waste of time. Um, but it, it's hard to feel like there's any benefit, I grant you. But I have seen over time by experimenting and saying, okay, I'm tired now, I go to bed, and going to bed really early, uh, that my mind gets duller over time. And that by just pushing it a little, being willing to sit with low energy and not much mindfulness and no sense of inner fulfillment whatsoever from the sitting, that I notice over time a real strengthening of actually all the factors. And I can tell that it's going on even through the tiredness. You know, so it's, it, it really can be helpful. And then for each of us, there's a point, you know, I hit the point where it's not just no energy, <laughs> you know, falling out of the chair. And then I'll say, okay, you know, time for bed. So I'm not a, you know, total Spartan about it. But it's, it's useful. Yeah. Okay. Um, again, we would like to welcome the people who've come to join us and acknowledging the ones who've been here, if there feels like thing about 
practice? Question, as I understand it, you referred to the question yesterday, but I'd like to come back to the question you said you asked, which was, uh, I didn't hear the question you asked, which was about. There was a distinction between consciousness and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. coming to the point that there's a difference between mindfulness and And you're tired? Is that, what <laughs> Is that what you said? You're tired? <laughs> well, I hear many different questions in your question, which I could not hope to answer <laughs> all of them. And I'm not even sure... Um, I'm not sure which is the heart of your question, which one to come in on. Um, she's talking the... She says, are these types of questions appropriate? I think certainly. If it's coming from your experience, um, not you know from something we've read, but even that could be helpful. But I certainly find questions about the nature of consciousness, um, where do thoughts come from, things like that arise, uh, I, I find in my own practice, as certainly valid questions, not questions with, okay, this is the answer. You know, okay, where do thoughts come from, this is it, finished. But more uh, the type of question that leads me to turn my attention around and investigate. So, for instance, what you were saying about if consciousness continues forever and something about consciousness that is I is never-ending and it makes you tired. Um, one thing I'd like to say is consciousness as defined as that quality of knowing in the Buddhist Abhidhamma arises and passes moment to moment. It's not a solid state that once beginning never ends and here we are stuck and there's no change possible. That would be exhausting. That thought I find tiring. And if that were the case, um, practice wouldn't be of much 
benefit if nothing could change. So the way consciousness can be investigated is to notice that quality of knowing that arises with knowing a sound, knowing a thought, knowing a sensation, and then to see that as the experience passes, so too does the knowing, another knowing arises the next moment. So it's a sort of an endless process but it's not a solid state. And one of the, what you said about the thought of it going on and on and on and through reincarnation and rebirth is tiring. Um, I'd like to say that thought, that the sense of the ceaselessness of arising and passing is one of the um, definitions of dukkha as it's described in the first noble truth it's one of the more subtle uh, descriptions of unsatisfactoriness of dukkha of the ceaseless arising and passing arising and passing arising and passing of whether it's consciousness or or physical sensations or sounds um, of course, it's when there's a sense of me that's identified with it that the ceaseless arising and passing is exhausting. So that's the second piece of what you said, this consciousness that's me. I'd, I'd suggest as looking into that in your experience. If consciousness feels like me in a moment, don't just accept that that is so, but keep exploring with mindfulness the nature of consciousness in a moment so it feels like me often that's true it does feel like me so too sometimes does a sensation so too sometimes does volition or pleasant feeling so our practice of mindfulness is when these questions come up they're great questions And in a way, to ask them isn't to get some answer handed, but a way to bring it up into our uh, awareness and then really look next time you're aware of consciousness that feels like me. Or a thought comes, where does it come from? Don't think about it, but really look, notice what happens when a thought ends. Where does the thought begin from? Notice the space between thoughts. So I think these questions are very important when they're arising from your heart, from your experience. Um, And there's no easy answers, but they're the, in some way, the crux, the nub of our practice to really look at at these issues. Lorna. You've a in it? <laughs> 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 it's 
the death meditation, Lord. <laughs> I'm teasing. <laughs> we just get another battery, Lorna. You can't. <laughs> She's talking about the relentlessness of the ticking of the clock and how she tries to work with it in various modalities when it's near her. Um, you didn't mention noticing aversion and hatred. Do you do you tune into those also? Note that. Yeah, yeah. Oppressiveness or something. Yeah, oppressiveness. Uh, um, all the ways you had of practicing, of course, are helpful. I actually, in something like that, that is really oppressing me, I would stay personally with Vipassana. And I would keep coming in close, right at the ear door, ticking, ticking, really let in the ticking, feel it, you know, feel it vibrationally, if you can feel it that way, rather than pulling away even the slightest from it, which is where aversion really spills in and takes over. I move right to the ear door, ticking, ticking, unpleasant, if you notice the unpleasant, or if it's already a little tightening in your mind or body, I'd notice tightening. Really being fully in it, where we tend to sort of notice it, you can even make all the notes accurately, but there's a subtle, ever so subtle pulling away from being right in the experience. Um, I mean, so often it happens, the clock's a good one because it just goes on and on, but so many people say there's somebody or something next to them that is so difficult, and really, so often that becomes the catalyst for deep insight, for, for real understanding of surrender, and that the oppressiveness of the clock that endless ticking, it's similar to the oppressiveness I was speaking of, the endlessness of arising and passing. It's oppressive when we're clinging to a sense of self. When there's no self that is reacting to the arising and passing, it's not oppressive. And you can notice the difference. There can be a moment, like I noticed the ticking, actually, this, this sitting, and I was thinking... The thought arose, I wonder if this bothers the yogis. This is ticking all the time. <laughs> and then I went back to whatever, and I didn't even notice it for half an hour. And then all of a sudden, ticking, oh, ticking, ticking, ticking. Oh, that's funny. I wonder how Mark feels sitting right here with this ticking all the time. Maybe that's why he's never in the hall. And then, <laughs> you know, and then I didn't notice it again <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> You can actually play with it, Lorna. Take it as an example of the oppressiveness of experience arising and passing and the, the way to experience freedom. The rising and passing doesn't have to stop. 
you know, so it, it could get interesting. Maybe you can hardly wait till the next time someone has the clock next to you. Okay, we have to stop for interviews. Thanks. setting to for mindfulness to really be a safeguard um, from the mind that's really um, involved with uh, wise reflection uh, thought about uh, work projects uh, things that are um, one is really involved in actively. For instance, you're coming in here now and uh, teaching that you were in your life and your world in the busy world right now. Is it possible for you to come in and uh, not reflect on what's going on in your life and really just come here and, and not let it leak into the... It seems that uh, it's, it's a great idea. It's, I mean, I just saw it now my attachment to the question. At first, I, you know, I could really feel my body sensations and I could let it go and then all of a sudden it would come in and then, I mean, I was noting, you know, sweating and tachycardia and then... That's a great And I would note them all and kind of dissipate in it. But part of me thought that it was too important to, to let go of. But then, you know, so, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I got the drift, I think. Two parts. The first part was just clarifying about intention and thought. So I'm not sure which part wasn't clear, but what I was trying to say is one, one way that we can notice intention is that often it manifests as a thought. Um, often it manifests pre-thought or pre-verbal as well. And to make it more complex, technically even a thought arises from an intention. So there's an intention before a thought. That's pretty hard to notice, so I didn't talk too much about that. Um, but when the Buddha spoke about wise thought or wise intention as the second stage of the path, he very specifically talked about unwise intention as thoughts of greed, of harming, of ill will, and wise intention as thoughts of renunciation and uh, friendliness or metta and compassion. Thoughts of compassion, metta, and renunciation. Wise intention, right, and that... Sometimes that arises naturally, but we can also consciously reflect. You know, 
which is what I was talking about, sitting there thinking, I've got to have this. You know, well, for example, your second part of your question, I've got to ask this question, you know, and um, which might or might not be true. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but there's, I've got to, I've got to have it, you know, and then I thought, maybe not, maybe I can put it down. That's wise intention. The second part of his question is quite broad, so I can only just touch on it. Is about is can mindfulness be a safeguard in daily life, which we certainly hope so. Or <laughs> this isn't, and um, of course it's a quite a broad question. He asked whether, uh, when we come in, I guess I can only speak for myself. Busy in our daily lives, we're not in a quiet meditative space a lot of the time, and can we put that aside and just? Is that what you mean? Right. 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 They're more seductive. Dharma thoughts, thoughts are more seductive, that. definitely. Well, that that's sort of a, to me a different question. That's definitely um, in the state I'm in. Sometimes dharma thoughts are more seductive. <laughs> sometimes, you know, what am I going to, you know, how am I going to juggle these three things I have to do is more seductive. But certainly at a, at a phase in retreat, as the mind gets more silent, I find that myself, whereas I can really notice other thoughts. They come. You don't hate them, but there's no real uh, hook. Dharma thoughts can be incredibly seductive. Or we think, well, I don't really need to note and notice this because this is really important. You know, I'm describing my practice. I'm describing the Dharma, the truth. And you know, in one level, it might be a true thought, that's not the point, but that seduction, that pulling, getting pulled in, is still craving. And so that's the point. It's not what the thought is good or bad or interesting, but the craving is just feeding more craving. And so I saw at one point how I had to be really uh, quite ruthless, not angry, okay, thinking. (laughs) This is thinking. It's an incredibly wonderful, beautiful thought, but it's a thought. And as long as I know it's a thought, there's no problem. As long as I know there's craving, it's no, no problem. Um, and, now, and now in here, from my life, well, certainly mindfulness is a protection and a refuge. It might not be on such a subtle level as when I've been sitting for seven weeks. You know, I don't you know, notice a thought before it starts often. And it really varies. Some days... I come in and I'm really right here. Some days we come in and we're planning our talk through the whole sitting, you know. And the difference is, I just realize that's what thought's doing. I don't sit here getting really upset with myself on the days there's a lot of thinking. And the, the way mindfulness is a refuge is if, I, if there's this sense of really being caught or some struggle, I really can call it in quite strongly. And just as you were noticing, you know, sweating and tachycardia. You couldn't hear that in the back. That was a great note he had, tachycardia. (laughs) (laughs) And various things, I can start noticing and noting and and really kind of get to the center of what's happening and rest in that, rather than being really confused and upset and wondering what's going on. But you you choose to, let's say, you're thinking about your thought. Sometimes I choose to think about it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes I... 
Sometimes I choose. I'm going to think about my talk now for 10 minutes. Yes. <laughs> I just need the perspective. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, Don. Um, yesterday, Sharon suggested that we know when, in, in, for instance, in the walking, to know just before the action. So if it's lifting, you know lifting, then lift, then moving, then move. Then. But um, so I, I tried that yesterday, and where I got caught up was in the idea that at that moment when you're noting lifting, that is the about to moment. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So are you noting intention or are you noting the movement? Questions about um, noting in walking, especially lifting just before the lift, moving just before the lift. But he notices in that moment of noting lifting, what he's actually noticing is intention. This is how it's so complicated, like trying to say things to the whole group. Because what you're telling me, Don, what I would say is I would note intending at that point because that is what you're noticing. And the noting, I find, is to land on what we're actually experiencing. Um, so if you're aware of intention but you're trying to note the lifting, it is sort of a, a leaning ahead in that moment. So for you, in that moment, I would notice intending. Um, now, I don't know who, why or who Sharon said that to. It could be quite different at other moments and for other people. After the action, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, after the action is gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because usually we, we would say, and my experience is the noting should be concurrent with the experience at the same time as the experience. That was your take on it, too. I've personally found if I try to note lifting before the lifting, it turns into a command. You know, I'm kind of giving myself marching orders or something. Well, um, actually, if you find that's helpful. I, I did find it yeah. helpful, actually, but also confusing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see why. We all have different. <laughs> really, again, I think it points back to looking at your own experience because what can be helpful in one particular phase of practice, as practice switches, gets perhaps more subtle or less subtle or whatever, that isn't helpful anymore that something's different. So in a way, it's good that you stay really right there with your experience instead of just assuming, all right, this is going to be good. You know, and you really look and go, wait, this is confusing me. If it's confusing you, then I just try to note exactly what you're with in that moment. You know, not try to get too tricky about it. Oh, okay, um, it's 9.15, so have an interesting day. Do you have any questions this morning?
Yeah, yeah, I hear that. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, could you all hear her question? It's about contentment, uh, which I, I can't go to what Steve said last night since I wasn't here, so I can only speak from my own understanding. And her difficulties with the balance between contentment, and does that mean we all just sit here and never would... Uh, take any action in the world and not care about the world. Um, To me, contentment and passivity are not the same thing. And when you describe sitting here and not caring about anything or anyone else and we're all just happy, uh, that's not how I think of contentment. Contentment does not preclude uh, skillful action or action from compassion, from wisdom, action motivated by love or connection. Um, Those uh, are very motivating energies that actually arise from the contentment of resting in truth. The contentment, that sense of inner contentment when we touch the place, it's not a place, it's hard to talk about, but when when we are awake in the understanding that we're not a separate being, that there isn't a me that needs to be protected, that is separate from other beings. Or another way of putting emptiness is a sense of inner completion where wanting and fear have no place. They just don't arise. From that place, it's not a place of delusion that sees everything as hunky-dory in the world and who cares what happens to anyone else since it's all empty anyway. That sort of wisdom that doesn't, isn't balanced with the connecting energy of compassion. So in my own experience, take a very mundane example. Let's not think too much about what's going on in the civil rights movement or who chooses to come and sit, because those are important questions, but they just lead to endless thinking. So I want to keep the discussion here in the grounds of our practice, because I believe that all of that can be seen in our own practice here. So take a more mundane example, like you come home and the house isn't cleaned according to the agreement. Or take an even more mundane example. You know, you come in the dining room and someone's taking food before the agreement. You know, something really immediate. Inner contentment would mean if I'm recognizing the truth in a particular moment. I could walk in the dining room or walk in my house, be centered in uh, emptiness and compassion, see that things haven't been done according to agreement, and I don't lose it. I don't get filled with hate. I don't get filled with anger because I've been disrespected, because I've been hurt. It's like there's an equanimity of, oh, this didn't happen. 
There might be valid reasons why it didn't happen. I find those out first because I'm in a place of balance and connectedness. There might be not valid reasons. You know, the agreement just wasn't respected because the person didn't feel like it. And even then, I wouldn't have to respond from anger or self-protection or hurt. There could be a balanced way to respond. But that looks at the whole situation. It wouldn't be, okay, you didn't feel like it, so we'll just assume there was no agreement. You know, metta and compassion look at the whole and what's good for the whole. It's not just self-centered, I'm happy, who cares about the world. You know, that isn't contentment to me. That's a kind of a, a, a pleasant resting place in the moment, but that isn't connected to wisdom, the wisdom of compassion. Um, and the questions you raise about the world are huge questions. You know, I don't know the answers to those, but I do know that the inner contentment of peace does not preclude wise action, but it can come from a place that's more connected and loving rather than from a place of frustration or, or anger or on confusion. That's how I relate to contentment. Yeah, Lorda. Okay, let One thing I'd say Lorna is don't don't despair about that. It's true when you've been practicing metta for 2 months, the mindfulness is only going into the metta, which is not a bad thing, but it's true we're not practicing vipassana at that time. And it's not I would not agree that metta is a band-aid. As you know, part of what happens with metta practice or karuna practice is that at times as the purification, the opposite will come shooting up. And as you're experiencing right now, it can happen very suddenly and with great intensity that anger comes up. And because we're just with the metta, it sort of blindsides us. You know, if you're a Vipassana, you might notice the beginnings of it. And doing metta, we don't notice that. And so when you suddenly become aware, it's like whoosh, this huge wave, so sudden and so strong. So first I just want to say, that's not like wrong or a mistake. In a way, it's seeing it gets lifted up more, these difficult aspects, via the metta, part of the purification. And 
So first, I want to say don't blame the metta, don't blame yourself. Something horrible hasn't happened. It's like, oh yeah, right. We can do metta, we're not completely living in the divine abode. We can still sort of notice once in a while these other intentions come through. That's not wrong, you know, it's going to happen. Um, and you're right, it's hard to, after two months to just switch into the vipassana with it. It's like a little rusty. Uh, and so uh, I just want to encourage you not to feel that something has failed, not to give up about it, not to let your mind thinking take over, you know, with, oh no, it didn't work, something's wrong, you know. And do try to, the thing you will find is because of the two months of metta, you might have to work a little to get to the mindfulness of Vipassana with the anger, but you'll have a steadiness of mind that once you get there, it'll surprise you. So it's okay, do try to use the steadiness and Vipassana with the anger, not the thoughts, huh? just feel it. You can just find, you might just be able to hover right there kindly with feeling the murderous rage, whether it's in your body, helpful, especially if it's in your body, in the emotional tone. The Vipassana means you don't have to do something about it. You don't have to satisfy the bloodlust physically, which clearly there's enough mindfulness, that's not going to happen. And you also don't have to get rid of it in order to be loving. You know, simply use the steadiness in the Vipassana to feel the feelings that arise together with the anger in your body, Notice the emotions and just gently, gently, gently let it be there. It's okay that it comes up. It's part of all of our practice. Um, and so you don't try to meta it away, you know. It's another, another piece to accept and that in itself is metta. Um, so it might be bumpy for a little while. If you cannot worry about that, not judge it, and just keep trying to feel it gently with the Vipassana, and it will, of course, shift. But, yeah, I just want to say it's okay. Don't, don't worry. Just a little rocky for a while. Thanks. And we have to go. Um, you may have noticed that Joseph's interviews for today are canceled. So the sheet up there is for Monday. Um, his, his grandmother died last night, so he's going to the funeral. She, was, uh, she would have been 100 in December. <laughs> so it's, it's sad and it's life. You know, it's not a huge tragedy in anyone's mind, but it's just how things happen. So he, he'll be back tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.